0: This podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, a leading manufacturer of inverters for solar storage and other distributed energy systems. German engineers at Keiko have been designing and building products for over 100 years. To find out more about the company's products, including the new Blue Planet single-phase inverter, visit keiko-newenergy.com. For the week of January 28th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., as always. And the tension is building this week. No, we're not talking about the Middle East or congressional politics or the Patriots' Super Bowl scandal. We're talking about the latest public spat between solar companies and utilities here in the U.S. We will tell you the latest. Then we'll move outside the U.S. to discuss President Obama's trip to India and problems in China's domestic solar market. We will wrap up the show by telling you something you do not know, of course. Let's say hello to my fellow pundits. Uh, Usually in New York, he escaped the snow. He is in... uh, the Chicago Hilton waiting to go to San Francisco. It's Jigger Shaw always in transit somewhere. He is a clean tech investor, entrepreneur. How are you, Jigger?
1: I'm doing great. I uh, survived the uh, non-storm that was the blizzard of 2015. Usually you get stuck in Chicago by another storm.
0: So hopefully you're free clear, free and clear of that.
1: I am, and just to be clear, the folks in Massachusetts got slammed, and so it was really New York City that that, uh, that, that bypassed the worst of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of Massachusetts, this week we have a fill-in host filling in for Catherine Hamilton in Boston. It's our friend and colleague, Shale Khan. He is the senior vice president of GTM Research, and I believe making his fourth appearance on the Energy Gang could be even more. They got a lot more snow up there in Boston, and uh, Shale dug his way out to get to the office early and record with us. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing well. I'm, I'm looking out the window at about two and a half feet of snow and empty roads because the stu- schools are still closed. So I'm, it's actually kind of worked out perfect for me.
0: So there's a different kind of storm hitting the other side of the country, centered in Arizona, and it's shaping up to be a lot more intense than snowmageddon. In the Northeast. So earlier this month, it was revealed that Arizona Public Service had authored a letter sent to the Federal Trade Commission, asking for an investigation into misleading business practices of solar leasing companies. Two letters were actually sent uh, by members of Congress in December, and it was just revealed that APS was behind one of them. Uh, And I'll read from some of the letter: "Quote, under increasing pressure from Wall Street to sign up more and more leasing customers before the ITC expires." these companies have been reported to use potentially deceptive sales tactics practices that if true deserves investigation in response solar city wrote this uh, scathing blog post saying APS is using so-called monopoly money to influence politics at the highest level congressional politics now not just the local regulatory politics in order to limit consumer choice and solar city has now created this blog devoted exclusively to calling out utilities for this reason Certainly a sign that things are going to get nasty this year, and uh, representative of the broader debate in a lot of different states. So, Shale, help with our some background here. Why did APS help craft these letters in the first place? Much of, how much of this do you think is centered on politics, and how much of this is like a legitimate concern about how solar companies are approaching customers?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a few pieces here that are worth noting. The first is the broader context, which is that there are about 30 states now out of 50 states where we've had some kind of a spat uh, between utilities and the solar industry over either net energy metering or electricity rate structures. Utilities generally trying to push back and, and sort of reduce the economics of solar, arguing that there's cost shifting occurring from solar customers to non-solar customers. The thing about it is that it, a lot of it started in Arizona. Arizona was the kind of the first big public one of these battles, and Arizona remains probably the most contentious one. So it's where the battle has become the most charged between particularly APS, the biggest utility in Arizona, and the solar advocates there. So a- anything that happens in Arizona isn't necessarily representative of other states, um, but it's representative of kind of when the the – system breaks down how bad it can get. So what APS did here, this is the latest in a series of of things that APS has done to in different ways either sort of take over the solar market or try to put a damper on the solar market. This one is uh, APS sort of privately sending a letter to some congresspeople in Arizona who then sent that letter to uh, the – FTC, I believe. No, I'm sorry. The C, the this is the yeah,
1: Elizabeth Warren group. Yeah, yeah.
2: I can never remember the acronym. And
1: anyway. the Federal Trade C- Commission.
2: And the Federal Trade Commission, right? Anyway, so the Congress people sent the letter, and the letter basically alleges that the residential solar leasing and PPA companies are using shady sales tactics to sell their product, and specifically that they're effectively guaranteeing customers savings over the lifetime of their lease. When in reality, they can't do that. They can say, you know, we're going to give you savings on day one and then you're going to have a 2% escalator and that's less than the historical increase in electricity prices. So you probably will save money assuming these assumptions are true. So, you know, maybe there's some – legitimate question around what's the right way to sell this stuff and talk to customers i do think that that's something that the industry needs to work out i don't think that there's any real evidence that there is widespread shady tactics and on the other side of this the fact that aps authored this letter privately to give it to this, these congress people now that's that's clearly a shady tactic it's not nearly something is out in the open and I would argue more reasonable for a utility to do, which is you know to propose changes to rate structures or net energy metering, and then have it discussed in front of a regulator. So this is a completely different kind of tactic.
1: Yeah, and, and I think clearly you know this kind of stuff happens all the time. I mean, NRDC is basically you know a top agency for staffers on the Hill that want to do climate change work, but it's different when an advocacy group does that and a, and a monopoly utility company that's regulated by the state and actually has its monopoly license as per the state doing this, right? I think that's the distinction. If it was an electric utility trade group like EEI that did this, I wouldn't have such a problem with it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, Solar City hit back with this blog post, and first of all, they said, um, you know, one tenth of one percent of our customers have complained. Those complaints tracked by the Better Business Bureau uh, are a very, very small piece of our business, and they have an A-plus rating with the BBB. Uh, But I have heard a lot of stories about aggressive sales tactics and whether or not they're lying to customers. That's, I think, APS is basically claiming that they should look into whether they're lying to their customers. But when it comes to just being pushy, I hear a lot of stories about these companies being pretty damn pushy.
1: So I don't think we should have any more real conversation about this. Look, I mean, the bottom line is that we really should have very aggressive salespeople. And we can argue about whether they should be used car salespeople or Tupperware ladies or whatever it is that we want to, like, compare them to. But it's important for us to be aggressive. Otherwise, we're not going to sell millions of solar systems. The broader implications here, I think, is why APS and others are doing this or why the Koch brothers, who just announced, you know, $889 million for the 2016 elections – are specifically targeting Republican legislatures around the country to go after solar. And I think the real reason for this is because when you look at the large nuclear power fleet that actually has to get relicensed over the next 10 years or the coal fleet much of which is slated to be retired in this next decade. You know, the the reason why we're going to succeed at retiring them is because renewable energy has decimated wholesale power prices. Whether it's Exelon going after wind or Arizona Public Service going after solar, the reason these guys are so aggressive is not because of our sales tactics or net metering or all this other stuff. It's because they have tens of billions of dollars of power plants that are going to be worth zero in the next five to 10 years unless they figure out how to destroy renewable energy. I I want to
2: go back to what you said at the beginning there, Jigger, because I I don't actually think I necessarily agree, or at least uh, in the way that you framed it around how people should be selling particularly residential solar. I think, you know, aggressive sales sure, and obviously the market needs to grow, there need to be a lot of people who go solar, so we need to have a big sales force out there. I do think it matters what they're saying to customers at the end of the day and though, you know, I don't think APS was necessarily justified in in just sort of stating that there may be widespread abuse of consumer protection standards. Uh, you know, I do think, like Stephen said, there there have been at least a fair number of anecdotes, and and a lot of them don't come from Solar City. That's worth noting. Solar City pointed that out in their blog post that they have a really good rating, but they're not everybody. Uh, They control about a third of the residential market. So there's, you know, hundreds of installers out there. And some of them may actually be using somewhat shady tactics. We actually even have a couple of anecdotes from within Greentech Media, weirdly enough, which is a company full of people who are pretty savvy about solar. We have a couple of people who've gone solar relatively recently um, in our company and had differing sort of somewhat negative experiences. In one case, we have uh, somebody who went solar whose roof is leaking. And it was sort of unclear when she was sold the system exactly how O&M was going to work on the system, how quickly there would be a response time, how much she would have to be paying. and She said sort of a negative experience with it. I don't think that every salesperson for solar needs to be perfect, but I do think that it's important that the standards are set such that solar, which should ultimately be something that grows organically like it does in Germany because there's just so much uh, awareness of it and sort of approval of it amongst the populace, in order for that to happen, you know, the experiences people
1: have of going solar have to be positive. Absolutely. But I just think that that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a fabricated story by APS, which Solar City has actually responded to, because they I, basically yeah. want to wag the dog, right? I mean, they have billions of dollars in coal infrastructure and nuclear infrastructure, and they're desperately trying to figure out how to undermine a technology set that has 94% of Americans behind it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, and we, we veered off into a different direction. I do think it's important to have this conversation about sales tactics. Just a quick number to put this into perspective, and then I want to move on to the broader political discussion. The Better Business Bureau says it processed 129 complaints about Solar City and 77 about Sunrun, and in just in Arizona. And uh, it said that that is extremely low compared to other equally sized businesses. So, an important point to make to put this into context. But going back to the politics of this, Shale, do you think that this is an escalation? In the war between solar and utilities, does Solar City's response here, which is one of the most aggressive I've seen in terms of how a company has reacted, does that escalate and have an influence on um, how we discuss net metering, rate, broader rate design, solar fees, etc.?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think I think that this is going to get a lot more intense uh, over the next couple of years at least. I think Solar City's gearing up for that. They've staffed up pretty heavily on their policy and electricity markets team in preparation for that. Solar City's not alone, of course. Sunrun's been really active and vocal about this as well and a few other residential solar companies i think they recognized that there was a first wave of these battles mostly in regulatory venues over net energy metering or in some cases the imposition of increased fixed charges the solar industry fared really well in that first wave in fact there were you know almost no real losses for solar with the exception of wisconsin um, but I don't think that the the solar advocates are blind to the fact that um, it's not over. We're still at the very nascent stages of this market and there is a lot of money that's going to be put into this ultimately uh, you know on the side of those who want to sort of change rate structures to to you know reduce the economics of solar. So I, I think I think this is just the beginning of, of at least a couple more years, if not longer of really big heated battles. I don't necessarily think the APS letter indicates anything that's going to happen in other places, just because, as I noted before, APS is such a unique, highly charged, highly contentious location for this right now.
0: So going back to your point on political spending, Jigger, you mentioned that the Koch brothers and their affiliate groups are going to spend just under a billion dollars in the 2016 elections. And a lot of that will be on the state level. And some of that will, of course, be devoted to energy issues. Um, Do you think the utilities here – see that their work is going to get done for them or do you expect um the utilities to still step up in this fight
1: well i think the utilities have been stepping in in the fight particularly first energy in ohio and others but but i, I do think that um I do think that when you think about what happened in the first wave of attacks against Solar, um, the Koch brothers really learned a lot. You know, I think what they learned was the tactics that really can get the votes in the in the House and the examples that they can be that can be used, and the attacks that can't. and And so I I do expect them to be far more effective this time around. I was the person I think last year saying that I didn't think that these guys would win. Um, But now I'm a little bit more suspect. And I think one of the reasons why I am is that I think the solar industry has done a horrible job at figuring out exactly what the tactics are to win. Um, My sense is the tactics are to win is to actually broaden our um, coalition. So to include anaerobic digesters and combined heat and power and other distributed generation sources and go as one single you know, sort of entity into the public service commission um, as opposed to going as solar only. But I think most of the folks in the solar industry have decided to go alone.
2: Well, I, I don't know that I agree with that.
1: I mean, just to defend the
2: solar industry's track record, I mean, I think you'd have to agree that if you look across the 25 or so states where we've seen any kind of an outcome, you know, it's been almost uniformly positive for solar. Thus far, again, again, Wisconsin being an ex- a, a counterexample and maybe Arizona where there's some compromise. But basically everywhere else, solar has fared very well with whatever tactics they're using so far. Yeah,
0: and well, that- I've also found on, in my experience, at least when it comes to national policy organizations, when you represent a lot of different industries, you tend to water down your message. People get unhappy with your priorities. and. That might change on a very local level when you're trying to influence one set of uh, regulatory policies, but I just have never really seen that all that effective.
1: Yeah, I agree, but the, and, and i'm I'm stipulating what you said, shale that's what I'm saying is we were very successful earlier, but I think the Koch brothers learned from their mistakes and figure out figured out like what arguments were really the best ones like the ones they used in Ohio. And my sense is is that for us to defeat the type of arguments they used in Ohio and Wisconsin, it's going to take a far more broad-based support mechanism similar to what the defense industry uses which is having a job in every util every congressional district which we don't have in some of these up and coming states like Indiana, or you know, some of the other states that have actually like proposed legislation here.
0: Well, help our listeners understand what they might be encountering here. We have a lot of folks in the U.S. solar industry, specifically listening to this show, and many of them will undoubtedly deal with these issues. What do you think the top three tactics will be um,
1: in some of these states, Jigger? What, you, what will people expect to see? Well, the number one tactic that really worked in Ohio. Is this, let's just pause the program and evaluate its cost effectiveness and then turn it back on later? Right. And that's I I think that's the most damning argument that worked really in Ohio. All these other arguments around cost shifting until the elderly, et cetera. We've been able to push a lot of that back. We, We do have back and forth on that, but they're not really winning that argument. The argument that they're winning is a lot of the Republicans are are subject, you know, subject to this sort of manipulative argument, which is why don't we just pause the program and study it and then and then see whether it's still worth going down the road on and if we do that we're going to lose two years here before the 2016 deadline i would
2: i would add to that just to clarify i think there's there are sort of battles occurring on two fronts here one is on renewable portfolio standards at the state level which is mostly what jiggers talking about there where in you know Ohio they've they've put pause on it and and I think that is a tactic you're going to see to the extent that there are continued battles around RPS standards the other set of battles is around net energy metering and there to me uh, the primary and far and away the most common tactic is going to be utilities proposing increased fixed charges on their bills. And then the question within that is do they do that specifically for Distributed generation customers, or do they do it for everybody? Because there have been a bunch of utilities that have just proposed increased fixed charges on the bills as part of a rate case, just saying this is this what, this is what needs to happen. And solar, you know, maybe is collateral damage in that. It's a it's actually a really effective mechanism to do it because it doesn't make them look like they're going after solar, whether or not that's part of the decision making. So I think you know on the net energy metering and and distributed solar side, that's what you're really watching out for.
0: Let's pause here to hear a little bit more about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. The solar PV industry hasn't been around for 100 years, but Keiko has for 101 years, actually. This German company started out producing engine gaskets in 1914 and eventually built some of the first inverters in the 1940s. We often talk about manufacturers surviving the recent solar shakeout. Well, Keiko survived bombings of its factories during World War II. In the 1990s, the company began in building inverters for the solar industry and has since crafted products for every type of project, from residential to utility scale to now storage. If you want to know more about Keiko's wide range of products and its rich history, go over to keiko-newenergy.com. Move over, Obama. There's a new superstar leader on the block. His name? Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. Since getting elected last May, Prime Minister Modi has become an internationally renowned man of the people, who, many hope, will end poverty in India and lead it further into the 21st century. If Mr. Modi wants to keep riding high, he might not want to ask Mr. Obama about how fulfilling all those lofty expectations turned out. But he did have a chance this week. President Obama was in India for a three-day trip. We're not sure if Obama gave Modi any advice from one rock star leader to another, but we do know they talked a lot about energy, nuclear, solar, energy poverty, and climate change. The trip was a a pretty big deal in that respect, particularly as the White House tries to rally support for an international climate deal in the months leading up to the UN negotiations in Paris. Jigger, now that the trip has passed, was it as historic as it was billed in the press, you
1: think? Yeah, I think so. I mean I think when you think about the personal relationship between you know, Modi and Obama, it's a really big deal. I mean just to give people historical context, you know, India basically ended up siding with Russia during the Cold War. And, uh, and then so – and the US ended up siding with Pakistan because it was sort of a better way for them to get intelligence on Muslim, the Muslim world. Um, and so the U.S. and India really hasn't had a strong relationship, even though we've had a strong relationship with entrepreneurs coming from India to the U.S. and all that stuff. And so this actually may be um, really a, you know, a breakthrough uh, summit around the U.S. and India actually finally treating each other like allies.
0: I saw that uh, Modi in his meeting with Obama had a suit with his name imprinted on the pinstripes. Are you going to get a suit like that, Jigger? Did you see this suit? Hey,
1: Indians like to pimp it out.
0: yeah, I think you need <laughs> something like that at solar conferences
1: <laughs> but I, but I do think the specifics are really good too. I mean, Obama really made some big um, announcements on nuclear, made some big announcements on solar, four billion dollars of financial support from OPEC, you know more from exim i I really do think that this is going to be. An absolutely huge partnership, and before this, you had Sun Edison announcing a four billion dollar manufacturing facility in Gujarat, and you know over three gigawatts worth of uh, announcements for uh, solar farms in Karnataka and Gujarat as well, and Rajasthan. So, I mean, I think there's some real specifics here, and I think there's some real money that's going to be invested into India uh, as per this because of this visit.
0: So the nuclear story dominated the headlines. The uh, president and the prime minister agreed, at least diplomatically, to change liability issues in India that uh, prevented U.S. companies and other companies from investing in India's nuclear sector. So India really wants to get a lot more of its energy from nuclear. It's about 2% of the energy mix now. But in 2010, um, they passed a law that required equipment suppliers to be liable for um, any issues with the plants uh, rather than the plant operators themselves. So that killed investment. And uh, in theory, the president and the prime minister are working around that now. And we'll see how that actually um, unfolds legally in India. Uh, On the solar front, uh, anything stand out to you? They seem to be really focused on, on the nuclear issue. I don't know how closely you followed the actual meeting shale, but what are you feeling about the promise of India's solar sector under Modi? Uh, you know, I actually
2: have mixed feelings about it.
0: Um, I think it's great. You
2: know, Modi clearly is a, is a big proponent of solar. He's been a big proponent of solar since before he was prime minister. And he has these extraordinarily lofty ambitions. There was already a plan in place pre- prior to Modi that uh, – was a goal to get 20 gigawatts of solar online by 2020. He expanded that fivefold. So his goal is 100 gigawatts of solar online by 2020. To put that in context, India installed about a gigawatt in 2014. So, you know, in some sense, I, I love the ambition. Um, and you know, there's a little bit of, of real action taking place behind it, and certainly getting some financing from Opic and Exim and places like that helps because that's that's been a big barrier in a lot of emerging markets that have tried to install big centralized solar. And and financing from those um, intergovernmental entities has has made a lot of the projects that have gotten done work. That said, I'm severely skeptical of India's ability to get to anywhere near 100 gigawatts of solar by 2020. Jigger, I'd I'd love to hear a counterargument for that cuz I hope that I'm wrong, but I have a hard time imagining that India ramps up anywhere near that fast. So, you know, I'm I'm in favor of it. Um and I think that there was a little bit of of real progress made here in that meeting last week, but you know, I think it's smart to retain a skeptic's eye toward ambitions that lofty that that haven't yet translated into real sort of policy and hasn't haven't dealt with a lot of the other issues that solar faces in India beyond just getting financing
0: severely skeptical that's like Mitt Romney's severely conservative that's right <laughs> yeah so uh, Jigger, can you speak to some of these grid policies uh, for example you have solar developers that have to pay uh, high fees to access the grid uh, they have as I understand it, fairly poor interconnection issues. Uh, Does there need to be some broader electricity market restructuring here in order to support this 100 gigawatt goal that is so ambitious
1: for any country? Yeah, of course. First, I think I want to correct like the nuclear piece, right? The reason nuclear w- led the headlines is because Ernie Moniz is obsessed with nuclear. I mean, I've had long conversations with DOE, and Ernie Moniz is not a big fan of solar. And so he pushed really hard to make sure that this, this was the message coming out was nuclear. I'm still not sure that India actually has the capabilities of building a $12 billion facility in India um, with nuclear power. So I don't know that a huge breakthrough is made there. I just know that Ernie Moniz is obsessed with nuclear. I think I didn't really hear Moniz talking about this much. Are you just no, talking about internal push? This is behind the scenes. Moniz just really doesn't think solar is serious or a real technology. I don't get that. So, sense. I know you don't. He's really good at like <laughs> saying otherwise, but I can assure you that inside DOE, he absolutely says that constantly. Um, but I think in terms of the the solar piece in India. Um, you know, look, Modi was brought to office precisely because of the skepticism that Shale has, right? I mean, ultimately, a lot of people have skepticism around whether India is a functioning country around infrastructure. And Modi got his electoral mandate, you know, really more as a sort of a Reagan than as an Obama, right? He's, he's, you know, the equivalent of sort of a, a conservative in India, not the, the, the other way around. And his promise to the people is that the roads are finally going to get built, that the the electricity grid's finally going to get built. All these things are going to be built, and that's what he did in Gujarat, right? He he turned Gujarat from a power deficit state to a power surplus state. He gave clean drinking water. Gujarat is the only state in India where you can actually drink water from the tap, right? He got farmers to finally pay for power in Indi- in Gujarat. So so that's why he got elected. Is he going to succeed? I mean, time will tell. But I do think that part of this negotiation was also the U.S. government pledging. Um, the ability for Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory and other laboratory resources in the U.S. to help India with its grid policy and grid planning to be able to accommodate this much solar. And it's not just solar. They've also made changes to the tax code to be able to get to 10,000 megawatts of wind per year being built in India. So they're, they're working every front. Well, time will tell to see whether it works. One other thing, though, Stephen, that I think we just need to make sure we highlight is that there was a lot of talk around the 300 million people that don't have access to electricity. And the thing that India has done that no other real country in the world has done is admitted openly that grid extension will not work and is no longer the policy of the Indian government. That, in fact, the policy of the Indian government is to provide these people with electricity through Um, solar home systems, microgrids, and other utility 2.0 techniques, which is not the official policy in any of the countries in Africa or South Africa or any other country.
0: Well, it sounds like a, a lot of progress has been made, but I've also seen them double down on coal and show a greater interest in nuclear. How can you say that that's the policy of the country when they're pursuing those technologies so
1: aggressively? Because the people using power on the grid still have a power shortage. So to the extent that they build new coal plants or new nuclear plants similar to South Africa, That power will go to people already connected to the grid. That's industrial capacity, commercial capacity, and some residential capacity. But they're very clear about the fact that they're not extending distribution feeders or lying to people about extending transmission lines to areas where the poor live because they know it's not going to happen and they've tried for 20 years and it's failed miserably. And so they're admitting freely that these centralized power plants are really going to just serve the people who are already on the centralized power grid. And for the people who aren't on the centralized power grid, they're going to move to utility
2: 2.0. I mean I think – I don't think it's as as black and white as that and certainly in their official policy it's not as black and white as that. I think what they're actually doing is saying you know, there's a group – there's a, a significant group of people for whom grid extension – isn't the most economic solution. It's not the fastest solution and so we're going to find an alternative off-grid or microgrid solution for them. On the other hand, they are building out some new distribution grids. Um, actually, some of these so big centralized solar plants are going to result in new distribution grids. but. You know, it's it's areas that are geographically closer to where the grid already exists. So I think it's some of both, certainly. But but I will, you know, agree with you, Jigger, that, that India's gone a lot further than I think anywhere else in, in really promoting off grid solutions.
0: Speculate a little bit for me, Jigger. Or maybe it doesn't have to be speculation. Maybe you know how some of these conversations are structured. When Obama and Modi sit down to talk about energy what kind of language do you think Obama is using in terms of energy access? Do you think that this distributed world that uh, we talk about so much is really a part of his vocabulary?
1: No. I mean, look, I think Obama is genuinely learning from Modi when he talks about you know, grid access. It's not like there's a problem with grid access in the United States. And so, you know, I mean, he's, I'm sure, fully briefed on what OPIC has been doing, which OPIC has given several small loans, people like Simpa Networks and others in India, to provide um, energy access solutions. I'm sure Obama's been briefed on the pay-as-you-go payment mechanisms that are, you know, taking real hold in East Africa. but, you know, I don't know that he really understands those issues, you know, in the graphic detail that Modi does. Because Modi spent, you know, seven or eight years in Gujarat as chief minister providing 100 percent energy access in in Gujarat. It's the first state to provide 100 percent energy access. And so, you know, I think on that particular issue, Modi's got more expertise than Obama does. But, I mean, I think that – I think they both – they basically both agree that – Coal is not the future. Remember that Modi at the G20 meeting in Australia announced that um, they were going to stop um, coal imports from Australia within two or three years. Right. So, I mean, Modi understands very acutely that that the importation costs of fuel, both diesel fuel and coal and natural gas, is destroying the Indian rupee, and that they have to actually find more homegrown solutions.
2: Can I? Can I? Uh jump in on something because we're talking about just Obama and, and sort of what he knows. I just want to highlight one stat that I read a couple days ago. This is slightly off topic, but the Washington Post had an article a couple days ago that was talking about uh, every time Obama has said the word innovation in his State of the Union speeches. And they had this graphic that was the most common uh, tech words in Obama's State of the Union speeches. And the list goes innovation, technology, science, and then solar. Solar is the fourth, fourth most common tech word that Obama has used across all of his State of the Union speeches.
0: Well, speaking of a, a country that's talking a lot more about solar, let's go over to China where the sleeping solar dragon has awoken. After years of investing in solar manufacturing and sending the global market into turmoil as a result, the country has finally gotten serious about stimulating its own domestic PV deployment, and the results have been mixed so far. In 2013, after setting a two-year, 10-gigawatt target, China installed 13 gigawatts of solar PV. That surpassed all cumulative installations in the U.S. at that time. As the numbers come in, it looks like Chinese developers installed between 10.5 gigawatts and 12 gigawatts of solar in 2014. So why the decrease after such a fast ramp-up? Creating a 13-gigawatt solar market out of nothing is not exactly easy. Turns out you need uh, strong interconnection policies, a supportive financial sector, and functioning technology. Like we saw with Wind, many projects have been hung up in China, unable to connect to the grid. And many developers have complained about poor modules, high defect rates, and have faced lots of rooftops that are unsuitable for PV. Um, Frank Hogwitz, an analyst based in Beijing wrote a pretty good piece on these troubles for PV Tech last week, and I want to link to that in our show notes. It's worth a read. Shale, does this temper your expectations about the Chinese market? As an analyst, you know not to accept the top-level figures at face value. How are you seeing some of these problems play out as some of our analysts track China? The very difficult-to-track Chinese market.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a mess. It's a it's a nightmare for solar analysts. Um, No, I I don't think that this has changed sort of our view of how the Chinese domestic solar market is going to develop. I think if you take a step back – uh, you realize, you know, China has ramped up its its downstream domestic solar market really fast. It's actually kind of done what we were saying India is trying to do. China installed 13 gigawatts, as you said, in 2013, off of a market that had never installed more than five gigawatts in any given year before that. By today, China has over 30 gigawatts of solar online. That's more than the U.S. It's faster than the U.S. solar market's growing. So, I mean, there there are plenty of issues to talk about, but in a broad context, China. Has done a really impressive job of getting a lot of solar online and operating. Now, I think the two things that you pointed to that are sort of issues crop, popping up right now. The first one is that China missed its target in 2014. As you said, it was a it was a 14 gigawatt target, and the, they installed somewhere between 10 and a half and 12 gigawatts. So they missed it a little bit. Um, the big reason for that was that. China had taken a different policy stance and decided in 2014 that they wanted the majority of that capacity to be distributed generation as opposed to utility-scale solar. And it turns out it's really hard to build a huge distributed generation market in almost no time, particularly in a country like China. There's rooftop suitability issues. There's rooftop ownership issues. um, There's grid access issues. There's financing issues. Distributed generation is harder. Uh, generally speaking, and, and you know that's what the U.S. has done so well is build up this this distributed generation market. But China thought, I think that they could do it faster than they did, so they missed their target. They didn't miss it by that much, um, and there was a lot of progress on the distributed generation front. So I don't think that's a long term issue. The other one, though. That you mentioned is uh, you know there have been some reports recently about sort of poor module quality resulting in underperformance of systems and sometimes systems breaking down and that's something that you know some people have been sort of uh, crying out about this for years because we had this ve- really fast ramp up of uh, manufacturing capacity you had a lot of sort of tier two and tier three Chinese Module manufacturers popping up in like 2009, 2010, you know, even a little bit before that, installing a lot of capacity with not necessarily the same kind of quality control that the top tier guys had. And it was going to take a few years for us to actually see the effects of that. So I think we're starting to see that now. In all likelihood, those systems, it's, you know, just going to keep happening. Um, So I think that. You know, at the end of the day, there are better quality control now. There are fewer manufacturers who are selling into the market. I don't think it's going to be a deal breaker for Chinese solar. But, you know, these are growing pains along the way in a market that developed really, really fast.
0: I was surprised by some of these numbers. Just looking at the defect rates, uh, a quarter of samples taken from uh, around a dozen Chinese companies failed to uh, meet material Quality requirements, and a third of the uh, 425 utility scale solar farms that were surveyed by the government had technology flaws. So, this is becoming a major problem. And you're right, a lot of people a couple years ago were warning about this, and now we are finally seeing those issues materialize. Jigger, any thoughts on China's uh, distributed generation policy? They made this sudden attempt to. Um, deploy a lot of distributed PV and they've had to sort of uh, change their policies on the fly because of these interconnection issues, because of uh, the lack of financing, because of lower self-consumption than thought. What do you make of this?
1: Well, I think the first thing to note is that the China experiment, along with the Japan experiment, has been an experiment in whether solar really can ramp up when it reaches sort of this grid parity um, level, you know, clearly in China and in Japan, these were supported by subsidies. But, um, but I do think that people are wondering, you know, can Chile, can Brazil, can other places really ramp up fast? And I think that both. Um, Programs are sort of showing where the weaknesses might lie. Uh, One is in quality control. I don't think the quality control issues are devastating in China, particularly because we have power electronic solutions now that can be deployed to help salvage a lot of these plants. And so you can sort of bypass the modules that are failing. You can like you know take advantage of you know some of the power electronics if if one panel in the string underperforms. And so I think there's a lot of ways for us to solve those problems now. So I don't think we're critically under um, resource in terms of the R&D p- department there. The other piece is on the distributed generation side. I mean, China, it's no secret that China has a huge problem with grid integration of wind power. And I think they're having the same grid integration problems with solar power um, because of the way in which their uh, HVDC lines work, their high-voltage DC lines work. And that's what's caused China to really move to a distributed generation policy because they're realizing that they won't have those problems if they do self-consumption. Uh, at the point of load as opposed to trying to transport the power all the way from Inner Mongolia uh, to the population centers. I think the question I really have about the Chinese quality issues and some of the other things is whether, shale, like you think that um, China is actually using their domestic demand as a way of performing the Saudi Arabia um, role in the oil markets. I mean, do you think that if there's excess demand externally from China, that China will actually scale back its internal programs and allow their their modules to get exported?
2: My – I mean obviously I I don't have a definitive answer. Here's what I think though. Um, The timing of when China really started to get serious about deploying solar domestically was right when Chinese solar manufacturers were having the hardest time. It's when we had a ton of overcapacity, prices were plummeting, margins were slim if existent if not negative. Uh, that timing seems too coincidental to me to not mean something. So I would guess that China initially developed ambitions for domestic solar demand, uh, partially if not entirely as a result of the fact that they needed to, to create more uh, demand for Chinese solar modules. That said, now China is the biggest solar market in the world. Um, they're installing more capacity every year than any other country. And it seems to be a job creator in and of itself and something that China is pretty proud of. So I wonder um, in a hypothetical situation where you know all of a sudden Chinese module manufacturers were totally sold out uh, and for a long time and there was another – Uptick in prices if they would scale back on their domestic solar ambitions. My guess would be no at this point, but there's no way to know unless it happens.
1: I mean, my checks have been that the tier one suppliers from China have all told me that, that China is their weakest margin market. Always, so. always. Yeah. It's so a, a, that you have to, they sell at
2: low prices. It's true. I mean, Chinese module manufacturers would, would uniformly rather sell into Japan than China. They get a higher price and a higher margin for their product. So to the extent that they can, they will. But China has been able to soak up a lot of demand for those guys.
0: All right, listeners, do you want to hear about something that you didn't know before? We'll try to give you some good factoid here and tell me something I don't know. And uh, Jigger, what do you got?
1: I see you're overcompensating from your oh, shortcomings yeah. before. <laughs>
0: That's right. By the way, no listener has gotten back to me. And I I actually haven't gone through all the shows yet, but I'm waiting for someone to determine how much more I call on Catherine than Jigger.
1: So I love the Fast Coexist uh, website from Fast Company, um, which focuses really on, um, you know, a lot of sustainability stories. They had an interesting article the other day around seven cities that are starting to go car free. And the cities are Basically, all either European cities or there's a Chinese city in Chengdu, um, and you know it was telling to me that none of the cities were American. And so, even though I think Washington D.C. has done an amazing job of of allowing people to live there car free, or New York City has always done that, it's interesting to me that they don't make this list. And so, I don't know. I think it's um, it's really interesting. People are trying to create cities that are trying to go car free, and it's interesting to me that. Um, the U.S. doesn't have any cities on the list. Shale, tell us something we don't know.
2: All right. So uh, I think you mentioned it on last week's podcast, but you know, President Obama during the State of the Union used this solar statistic about uh, there being 22 times – basically there, there's 22 times as much solar installed in 2014 as there was in 2008. So in every three weeks in 2014, we were installing more than the entire year in 2008. That was the statistic that he chose to use. Um, but in the lead up to that, we were getting a bunch of requests for statistics about solar that he could use in the State of the Union. So I thought I would give you a few of the ones that we came up with that he did not end up using. Please. Um, so let's see, a few solar statistics for the general populace. One, uh, there are now more than half a million homes and businesses that have gone solar. So there's more than half a million solar rooftops in America. Two, an update on last year's every four minutes, another American home or business goes solar. Now, every – or at least in 2014 and every 2.5 minutes, another American home or business goes solar. Three, uh, more than $15 billion was invested in American solar projects in 2014 alone. That's a $15 billion market now. Uh, Four, I'll give you two more. Four, The average cost of a home solar system has fallen 60% since 2008 over Obama's tenure. And finally, this one would never have made it into the State of the Union, but for solar wonks uh, is super important. We've seen over four gigawatts of utility-scale solar contracts signed outside renewable portfolio standards just in the last 12 months. So over four gigawatts of projects are being developed at competitive prices um, without the need of a renewable portfolio standard to support demand, that used to be the only way you could get a utility-scale solar project done. It's not true anymore.
0: You're on a hot streak, Shale. Three years in a row next year, I want to hear a GTM research stat in Obama's State of the Union. So come up yeah. with some good ones. <laughs>
1: uh, on hey, that. by the way, I mean, tying to our first topic, it is interesting how utilities love utility-scale solar but are fighting distributed solar.
2: Well, utility-scale solar doesn't reduce the – Kilowatt hours that they can sell the customers. So they they feel better
0: about it. Indeed. Two quick ones for me. I just saw this morning that SMA is laying off 1,600 workers or plans to lay off 1,600 workers. I think 1,300 of them are in Germany. And uh, going back to our China discussion, obviously facing some uh, major pricing pressures from Chinese suppliers. And then quickly, I should have mentioned this up front we have a new GTM research report out about the regulatory sphere uh, called, uh, what is it called, Shale? It's
2: called Regulating the Utility of the Future.
0: And it's written by Ben Palos, who is a contributor to us, and he was formerly of America's Power Plan. And he looks in detail at five states that are considering changes to the way utilities are doing business. New York, California, Hawaii, Massachusetts, and Minnesota – And we have a lot of people in the regulatory sphere who listen to this show, so I recommend it to them. It is a great report. Actually, anyone doing business in the electricity sector in those states, I recommend it to. So you can find that. Again, it's called Regulating the Utility of the Future, Implications for the Grid Edge. You can find it at greentechmedia.com slash research and all the other fine reports from Shale's team. That's it, folks. You can go check out more resources related to the topics that we discussed at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We've got links to a few stories we referenced throughout the show and all back 71 episodes there. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can get us individually or the through the Energy Gang handle. And you can send us questions and comments through there or do it the old-fashioned way and send me an email at lacey, L-A-C-E-Y at greentechmedia.com Thank you so much to Keiko New Energy for sponsoring this podcast. We do appreciate their support, and we really appreciate the support of our listeners, so thank you. Shale, appreciate you filling in this week and braving the snowstorm. Good chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for those great solar stats there. Jigger. I know you're off on a trip there. Safe travel as always.
1: Thanks. I'll uh, try to avoid the uh, the winter weather.
0: May all your calls from Starbucks and hotels be free and clear. <laughs> <laughs> With Shale Khan and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Catherine Hamilton will be back next week, and we will catch all of you next week.